Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jim Morrison died at the age of 27, and he lived a life that frequently spun out of control. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. One would be the number of empty film canisters that he filled with cocaine en route to a late-night hookup with a married woman at Hollywood Chateau Marmont. Another four would be the number of lanes of traffic he'd cross on foot after tearing ass through an L.A. cemetery in search of a headstone to defile. Two would be the number of corporate parties he busted up with rage and violence, including one that celebrated the opening of Elektra Records' new office. Another one was the number of girlfriends or wives, depending on the legality of a pagan marriage ceremony that he left scared and alone. And 19 was the number of weeks he had left to live after his old pal Jimbo told him a tall tale about a night he confronted a couple of lovebirds with a 22 revolver. On this, our ninth episode of season two, cocaine two-reelers, corporate punch-ups, emotional abandonment, and Jim Morrison, lost in fantasy. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The first line of cocaine disappeared quickly up Jim Morrison's nose. He scrunched his nostrils with his fingers and snorted loudly. His nose went numb. He thought of his friend Jimbo and the thing Jimbo always said after chugging the first in a long line of pull-top watery domestics. 
tastes like another one. The first line gave Jim the confidence to snort the second line, and the second line turned him into a superhuman. He dropped the rolled up $100 bill down on the table, brought his arms up in the air, and performed a double Herculean bicep flex. His mind went into overdrive as he ran his fingers through his rough hair. Miami, Lawyers, Wiccans, The Desert, Modesto, The Corner Pocket, Fogarty, The Wizard, Bloodshed on Cielo Drive, Jay Sebring, Pam, Beautiful Pam, Jimi Hendrix, Dead, Brian Jones, Off the Deep End, Yeah, The Back of the Roadhouse, They Got Some Bungalows, Blood, Jimbo, Planes, Broken Stages, Sunset Strip, Patricia, The Blue Lady, Venice Beach. The woman standing next to him grabbed his arm and kissed him square on the lips. It stabilized him. His nose was still numb and tingly. His superpowers still intact, but his mind slowed. He handed her the tightly wound Benjamin and she leaned over to hoover up her own thick line and joined Jim out on the trip. The woman was Ingrid Thompson and the two were in her room at the Chateau Marmont, the notorious Hollywood hotel where Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski lived as newlyweds before moving to the Cielo Drive house where they were murdered at the hands of the Manson family. Jim had a room there too. He had waited until Ingrid's husband left town for business and then he knocked on her door, bottle of bubbly in one hand and a film canister full of blow in the other. Jim thought it was so fitting, so perfect, to arrive with an empty film canister, the celluloid replaced with cocaine, and they were in Hollywood after all. Ingrid didn't even think about saying no. And they guzzled champagne. Jim dumped the coke from the canister on the coffee table, pulled a credit card from his back pocket, and they snorted line after line. And Jim's mind would race and he would reach out and touch her to get the others out of his head. He thought of Pam off on a boondoggle in Paris, probably pissed at him again about something that he did or didn't do. He thought of Patricia, technically his wife, following the pagan wedding ceremony, at least in the eyes of some earth dirt mother that her coven worshipped. He thought of Jimmy, of Brian, Jay Sebring, and then Janice. Fucking Janice. Janice Joplin was found dead on the floor of her hotel room in Hollywood when she didn't show up for a recording session with Paul Rothschild. It happened right around the time Jim's Miami trial ended, a month after Jimmy died, and they were both 27. It was like there were dominoes that had been set in place years ago, and they were finally falling down. He'd do another line, and the faces of Janice and Jimmy and Brian and Jay pushed to the front of his brain. Jim saw himself as the next domino, standing up, precariously, just waiting for that gentle wind to come tip him over. Then Ingrid would quickly grab his crotch through his jeans, suck on his neck, touch him anywhere on his body, and pull him screaming into the present. It was only the two of them in that room. And they finished the champagne, but they were thirsty for more, for something else. Ingrid blew another fat white line through the rolled up sea note, and it was like someone took a mallet to her heart. Her eyes sprung wide open and she knew. In that moment, she knew that she needed to grab one of the razor blades from the bathroom vanity. Have you ever drank blood before? She asked Jim, wild-eyed, her heart in her head, bounding fearlessly forward. Jim thought about the Wiccan ceremony with Patricia, about the blood running down his arm and said, no, he hadn't. But holy shit, that seemed like a great fucking idea to do right now in this moment. Where the hell is that razor? Who's gonna go first? Ingrid returned from the bathroom, razor in hand. As she sprang towards Jim, the light in the room caught the side of the blade and glimmered on and off. The intermittent flashes hit Jim's eyes like some sort of Morse code that he struggled to interpret. 
She placed the champagne flutes in Jim's hands and held the razor blade to the meat between her thumb and her palm. She sliced in, deep. It didn't even hurt. It felt like a warm washcloth running over her skin. And the blade sank into her flesh and the blood sprang out. Deep crimson had spilled out fast, darker and wetter than they expected. A big pool of it on her palm that split into separate streams, dripping down the length of her long fingers. It kept coming. Ingrid placed her other hand over the incision site, but the blood found a way, oozed out between her fingers. Jim held out the champagne flutes and caught the blood as it spurted and trickled. A few drops in each glass, then a few drops more. He wanted to get a decent amount of blood in each flute. If they were going to do this thing, they were going to do it right, not half-ass it. He placed the flutes on the table, each now containing a gulp of Ingrid's blood, peeled his long sleeve shirt from his torso and pressed it hard against her hand to stop the blood from coming. And they kissed, and Jim looked down, and the blood was everywhere, on her arm, his arms, his jeans, and on the floor. And they took the champagne flutes in hand, clinked them together in celebration, and then it was down the hatch. The blood still warm and overwhelmingly metallic, Jim wiped his mouth with the back of his arm, a faint white coke stash on his upper lip, and blood smeared across his cheek. The rest of that night was a blur. He woke up a November morning in 1970 and assessed the dried blood that covered his body in the bed sheets. The blood was darker now than it had been the night before, and it was the only thing Jim had to remind him that last night actually happened. It was almost like a dream, a fantasy. And fantasies have a way of dissipating in the cold light of day. Just how a dream slips away after the first few minutes of consciousness in the morning. He was hungover. And not just from the late night antics with Ingrid in the Chateau Marmont, but from life, a reality hangover. The doors had regained their footing during 1970, despite Jim's trial and sentencing. In addition to Morrison Hotel, they released Absolutely Live in the summer a double LP that included tracks recorded live in Hollywood and Detroit. It was a disappointment. It moved only half the units that Morrison Hotel had. Electra was readying 13, the band's first compilation album to release during the holiday season. The record with that infamous bust of Aleister Crowley on the back cover. The label was clinging to the kinder, gentler version of Jim and opted to use an older picture of him without his gamey beard for the cover photo. Another fantasy. The band was out of the frying pan of controversy, but they hadn't found the subsequent fire. Jim felt they were losing relevance, or maybe they'd already lost the relevance and they were incapable of getting it back. Jim just didn't have it in him. He had moved on, moved on to fantasies of coke and bloodlust and decadent Hollywood hotel rooms, forbidden love trysts. He would white knuckle onto this fantasy for as hard and long as he could, but the reality hangover would always catch up with him. It always did. He laid still in Ingrid's bed, caked in her blood, and could feel the other shoe about to drop on his world.
Patricia Keneally was starting to suspect that he would be a no-show. Maybe Jim Morrison had a change of heart. Maybe he had somewhere else to be. He had forgotten all about it. He bailed. Whatever the reason, Jim had left her high and dry. Alone, scared, confused, betrayed. Alone in a New York hospital with a doctor she had never met before. She was terrified of what would happen next, and she had no one sitting next to her to share in the terror. She was 24. She replaced the terror with resentment and with anger. He had promised her. He had looked her dead in her eyes in a hotel room in Miami just weeks earlier and promised her that he would be with her. He would be there in New York to comfort her, to listen to her, to cry with her, hold her hand and to be her person. But in the hospital, she went it alone. Put the hospital gown on, alone. Laid back on the cold metal table, alone. Closed her eyes and listened to the doctor's voice, alone. Jim should have been there. He also promised he would pay for the abortion. He had looked her in her eyes. He would step up, he said. Liar, fucking pig, liar. Patricia broke the news of her pregnancy to Jim weeks earlier in Miami while the trial was happening. Thinking back, she wasn't sure exactly what she was expecting for a response. That he would be ecstatic, jump at the chance to have a child with his Celtic pagan wife, Perhaps she didn't expect that much, but she wasn't prepared for his cold reaction. He shut down, wanted nothing to do with it. She could have the baby if she wanted, but it would be her burden and not his. He was unprepared for parenthood, for that kind of responsibility. He was unprepared for anything that required an equal amount of sobriety and empathy. How could she have been so naive to think that Jim Morrison would settle down or at least give a single fuck? He gave no fucks about Patricia's family situation. And Jim's lawyer, Max Fink, was dealing with a handful of paternity suits against Jim at the time. And the last Jim had known, there were three women who had come forward with claims. But he wouldn't be surprised if there were more. His disaffected response and callous attitude towards Patricia was a natural reaction at this point. Survival instinct. Deny. Defer. Deflect. Dig into the fantasy. Illegitimate son of a rock and roll star, Jim sang on Maggie McGill. Mom met Dad in the back of a rock and roll car. The lean blues of Maggie McGill closed out The Doors' fifth album, Morrison Hotel, released in 1970. If the soft parade was brass and strings and paisley and lace, Jim Morrison's moment to get up on that crooner pedestal and ride his Sinatra in the Hollywood Boulevard gutter trip. The Morrison Hotel was a bona fide back-to-basics record. No bullshit rock and roll. It is the band's meat and potatoes album, a slab of hauling wolf's threats and bloodshot masculinity that you can practically smell. Well, I woke up this morning and I got myself a beer. The future's uncertain and the end is always near. Morrison Hotel was a product of 1970 in the same way that the soft parade was all late 60s. Jimbo had written off the flower children in their rose-colored glasses all the way back to human being and beyond. And now, he was getting the music he wanted to hear out of his friend Jim. The no-bullshit music, calloused music, wise and jaded. Morrison Hotel is a 60s hangover record. In his review for Rolling Stone, Lester Bangs called the lead-off track Roadhouse Blues angry hard rock, and one of their very best ever. In true hard-to-impress fashion, though, he panned the rest of the record for its mechanical, stereotyped rock arrangements. Meanwhile, Cream Magazine's editor, Dave Marsh, called it the most horrifying rock and roll record I have ever heard. And he meant that in a good way. Circus Magazine went as far as to crown it one of the best albums of the decade, 
despite the fact that the decade had just begun. The doors felt vindicated, redeemed. They had been forsaken, they had been banned, they had bounced perilously close to the edge and being forgotten once and for all. Jim's behavior put them on the map and also threatened to wipe them from the map. And now, they were finding themselves back on the map. Anywhere, it didn't matter. It just felt good to be back. And they were touring again. And the new album was a hit. The doors were relevant. But Jim was a different story. Jim was dangerously close to complete and total irrelevance. He was elsewhere, lost somewhere deep in the recesses of his own mind. There were rumors that the reason why the band couldn't pursue the more serpentine music of their earlier albums is that Jim simply wasn't up to the task. He had to be drunk to even give a shit. He chugged cases of beer at the studio. He reportedly drank 36 beers at one of the Morrison Hotel sessions. He wasn't an active participant in the creative process. Ray Manzarek had to flip through Jim's notebooks to find lyrics to use for the new songs. Jim was so disconnected, he was no longer arriving to sessions with words and melodies like he had in the past. An outlier from the start, Jim was now traveling with his own posse. And there were the doors, and then there was Jim Morrison. Two parts of a whole that was no longer whole. Patricia came in hot, looking to add clarity and context to this increasingly muddled world. A world of drunken days and sleepless nights and court trials and dysfunctional band dynamics. She flew from New York to LA and went straight to the door's office. She wrote a note to Jim to tell him about the abortion she'd endured on her own and stuck it to a desk with a dagger. The note was short and to the point, but the dagger drove the point home. Hey, motherfucker, time to deal with this. Now. Pam had just returned from her trip to Paris, and that night Jim found himself in the same room with both women. And neither was happy with Jim, and they hated him, but they loved him. And they both wanted to end things with him, and they both wanted to keep things going. And they both sympathized with the other. They both wanted Jim to answer for the things he'd done, or perhaps, more importantly, the things he hadn't done. And they both thought that they were standing at an impasse with a person that they no longer recognized, or that they had never really recognized in the first place. Who was he? Was Jim Morrison a psychopath? An unfeeling shell of a person? A pathological liar or just another disappointing man? Another petulant man-child too wrapped up in his own fantasy to play a leading role in anyone else's reality? Who was Jim Morrison? He was no longer the Florida son of a decorated rear admiral. He was no longer the boy who inherited the soul of a dying Native American. He was no longer the homeless golden god of Venice Beach or the shock rocker of the Sunset Strip. And he was no longer the face of American counterculture, no longer the gutter poet who teased a rapt audience with his hand down his leather pants. It was hard to tell who he was anymore, or where he was. Perhaps he was exactly what Rosanna White had accused him of being years ago before he got famous. What Dennis Wilson had pegged him for outside the whiskey on the strip when he put his fists up and took his best shot. Dennis Wilson was the real deal, but Jim Morrison, Jim Morrison was nothing more than a phony. A fucking nobody. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City 
featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony DeLisandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 you know what i'm saying like it could have been like easier and a lot of people have asked me like how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple and what else was it gonna like that's what the song wanted thanks for listening to this episode of the crew call podcast on deadline are you looking to step up to a 4k smart tv one that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution then we've got good news for you because the vizio 65 inch v-series 4k smart tv is now just 348 with all your favorite apps built in you can stream straight out of the box you can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app looking for a smaller or bigger screen vizio offers unbeatable prices on all v-series 4k smart tvs head to walmart.com today and score the 4k tv you've been waiting for Jimbo for sure was a nobody. Down and out, no one knew exactly where he came from or what exactly it was that he did. He always had a different story for where and when he met Jim Morrison. It was on a rooftop in Venice Beach watching the waves get violent. It was in the Mojave Desert with nothing but peyote in the wind to guide him. It was at a house party at Stephen Stills' place or John Davidson's house, who really cares, and Jimbo was crashing it, hard, wasn't even pretending to know someone there. He was there for the action, for the mystery, for the excitement. He and Jim instantly dialed in on each other's brains like a radio wave that penetrated the room stuffed full of partygoers from corner to corner. Simpatico, dialed in EO. It was at a club on the Sunset Strip. Jim and the doors were opening for a bigger band. And maybe it was love and he, Jimbo, was heckling the band from the back. Or maybe he was working the bar or he was drinking at the bar. It didn't matter how it all began. It just mattered that one day, Jim and Jimbo hit it off like gangbusters. Motherfuckers got on like a house on fire. Jimbo was a nobody for sure. He had the same squirrely responses when he was asked where he came from. Who were his people? What was his deal? What was his last name? He'd never tell. He was from the valley. He was from Hoboken. He was from a cornfield in some town you've never heard of in Iowa. He was born in a taxi in Bakersfield and grew up on the streets. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and said fuck off to all the wealth and privilege when he turned 18. He told Robbie Krieger that he was from an undiscovered moon off of Mars. And he told girls whatever it was they wanted to hear that would lead to the liberation of their pants from their bodies. You get the idea. Most found him offensive, disconcerting, 
the belching, the loud voice, the smell, the lack of decorum and social cues. He was the guy your mother warned you about at the party. The guy that your mother wouldn't allow to drive you around town in his car. Others found him to be evil incarnate, a harbinger of destruction and chaos, death himself. It was a dark cloud that hung around Jim. It made his mood swings wider. Jim was rowdier with Jimbo. He was drunker with Jimbo. He was more unpredictable and more embarrassing with Jimbo. With Jimbo, whispering in his ear, Jim Morrison said, fuck it all. Kill the father and fuck the mother. Yes, but fuck it all. All of it. Fuck family. Fuck the suits and the military and the capitalist pigs and the fucking privilege. Just like John Fogarty said, he wasn't no fortunate son. He wasn't no fortunate son because he said, fuck that privilege shit. But that wasn't enough, Jimbo insisted. Fuck the hippies and fuck the squares and also the women and the children they bore. There was just now. There was just him. And he was a nobody. The duo went full wild child when there were three sheets to the wind. Just pure woolly bully id looking for release, barreling through Hollywood Memorial Park Cemetery late at night. They wanted to find Rudolph Valentino's grave, but it eluded them. They stopped to piss on Cecil B. DeMille's headstone instead, and Jimbo did the obvious thing as he relieved himself in the prize plot and shouted, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Their mad dash through the cemetery spilled out onto Santa Monica Boulevard, where driver's headlights reflected off two hairy pale bodies careening wildly through the street. Occasionally, Jimbo would give Jim a glimpse into himself, into his background. He saved those moments, those crumbs, for Jim alone. One night, they met each other at the Griffith Observatory in LA, the Art Deco institution that casts a watchful eye on the city of angels below, acid tabs dissolving under their tongues, the first few tokes from a newly sparked joint tasting a lot like the desert forest they'd just hiked through to reach the top. They sat on the edge of the parapet that formed a perimeter around the observatory. Jimbo told Jim about a couple of high school seniors, lovebirds, that he had met a few years back. He was strolling along the beach in some state park just west of Santa Barbara, where he was working a metal detector. Holding it out in front of him, waving it in a half-circle formation along the top of the sand as he pushed forward. The sun was setting beyond the ocean's horizon, that indescribable burst of color that seeps from the top of the distant waterline and oozes into the sky like blood billowing upwards through an unattended glass of day-old water. His pitch-black sunglasses kept the sunset from hurting his eyes, and it also gave no indication to others what his eyes were doing, that he was watching them, watching the lovers and the sunbathers and the exposed. He was marching along the beach, turning up nothing as usual, when he saw the boy and the girl, two lovebirds laying on their backs. The boy was wearing swim trunks, and she was wearing a one-piece, all black, bouffant hairstyle. He told Jim that the sun had sunk below the horizon when he bound them up. He made sure the rope was tight. He was remedial at best when it came to tying knots, so he just kept threading the rope back in on itself and tying small knots off one on top of the other. And they both begged for their lives. The boy cried. Jimbo had a 22 caliber pistol stuffed down the back of his pants, and he had to reload it a couple of times he shot them up so much. He dragged their bodies to a shack, tried to set it on fire, but the matches were too wet from the sea moisture, so he just left them as they were. He stuffed the 22 back down his pants and spent the rest of the time worrying it was going to accidentally go off and shoot his own dick clean off. It was a thrill, he told Jim. A thrill to see them there on the beach. A thrill to tie them up, 
to point the gun at their heads and know what was going to come next. A thrill to know that they were powerless to stop it. They could do nothing. Jimbo had the power. Jimbo said what happened next. Jim couldn't quite believe what he was hearing. He held out the joint, contemplated it, wondering what the fuck it was doing to him. What was it laced with? And the stars had started to poke out in the night sky, both those that were really there and those not totally obscured by the smog and light pollution, and also those that weren't there, the ones that Jim was totally making up in his mind as the Owsley tab and the joint made their unholy alliance in the depths of his brain. Jimbo stared at him, hard, slow. He didn't blink. Jim felt a crushing pressure on top of his head. He was out in the middle of a hill in Los Angeles, as exposed to the elements as one could get in Southern California. And yet he felt boxed in, claustrophobic, trapped. Jimbo held his gaze, his eyelids squeezed in tight, his lips pursed. And then he laughed, a big jumbo laugh that started in his beer belly. A hefty laugh that got bigger and more unpredictable as it got louder. And Jimbo's body bounced up and down. He laughed so hard that he began to drool from the side of his mouth. He slapped Jim on his back. The roach flew from Jim's lips from the force of Jimbo's hand. I'm just fucking with you, brother, he said, still laughing. The tears rolling down his cheeks now. And Jim still sitting there, petrified as he had entered inside a fantasy that he could never crawl out of. Jim Morrison didn't want to go to the party, but he went anyway. Why the hell not? As far as Jim was concerned, he was the reason that Electra Records was as big and successful as they were. He was the reason that Jack Holtzman had recently been able to negotiate a deal with Mo Austin at Warner Brothers. He put that little folk label on the map. The doors had made it possible for Holtzman to get a $10 million buyout when Warner acquired Electra. And these music industry suits weren't going to get rich off records by Judy Collins and Tim Buckley. And so, if Electra was going to have a party to show off its new office digs, Jim figured he should at least put it in an appearance. See what he had helped Electra achieve. Let them all kiss the ring. Jim wasn't totally off the mark. Electra had love and it had the Paul Butterfield blues band, but the Doors changed the game for the little label that could. The Doors would pave the way for the label's next wave of rock and roll when Electra would soon shift gears from a largely folk-based to cutting-edge releases by the MC5, the Stooges, and later by television in the cars. In Jim's eyes, the new Electra office was the house that the Doors built. Every big new desk, that was because of Jim. Every shiny new telephone, that was because of Jim. The floors, the windows, the water cooler, the paperweights and the door stoppers and paint jobs so fresh, you get a VOC contact tie just by hanging around. Jim, Jim, and Jim. He sipped on a cocktail and let a cigarette burn between his fingers and mingled, smiled, made nice, put on a show, and the suits at Electra, the secretaries and execs and all the invited friends and colleagues wanted a moment with the Jim Morrison, the resurrected rock god back from scandal and poised to take the label into the 1970s. But deep down, below the surface, Jim knew that Jack Holzman should be on his knees thanking him for his part in all this. Jim Morrison was somebody. Jack Holzman should be introducing him to every guest at the party, not as Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, one of the most popular and certainly most controversial rock bands on the planet, but as the reason they all got paid that week, 
The reason they put food on their family's tables that night. They had a job and Electra had a pulse because Jim did what Jim did. Because Jim wasn't a nobody. At the moment, he was too busy being polite and agreeable to argue this point. And there would be time for that later. Give him a few more drinks, let him talk with a few more guests. The resentment and the demand for respect would find its way to the surface. Give it time. Jim's actor friend, Tom Baker, the one who got him poached by the feds on that drunken plane ride to Phoenix, went to the party with Jim. The two were inseparable drinking buddies when Jim wasn't working. Tom's latest film was Ghetto Freaks, a hippie exploitation mess that was widely panned. Tom Baker didn't think that Jim Morrison was a nobody. Tom had had too much to drink, as usual, and Jim was an easy target, a sitting duck of entitlement. If Tom was being honest with himself, he was a little jealous of Jim's status. Tom was Jim's fellow Hollywood vampire and equal when they prowled the streets and beaches of Southern California without a care besides which bar stool they would commandeer next. But here, inside Electra's swank new digs, surrounded by a who's who of the label's internal operations, Jim was part of the elite, a king. Nope, Tom Baker sure didn't think that Jim Morrison was a nobody. He was somebody, all right. He called Jim out as a corporate shill, an undercover bureaucrat, a pawn in the game of some money-grubbing fat cat CEO. And Jim just made money for all the people who were making even more money. He was lining these guys' stuff pockets. But Jim was the one who had to do the song and dance, get on a stage and make a fool of himself. He was the one who was made to go too far, take it to the extreme, get arrested, go to court, deal with all that bullshit. Meanwhile, the suits in the Electra office, this new Warner Brothers funded corporate office kept their noses clean and counted their money. Tom knocked back his gin and tonic and elbowed Jim in the ribs, the universal nonverbal symbol for, I'm just fucking with you. Relax, told Jim. There's no shame in being a corporate whore. Just as long as you know you're a corporate whore. Just keep doing you, brother. Keep railing against the man and fucking with authority. But you gotta admit, it's pretty fucking funny that you are the man. You are authority. You may as well put on a three-piece suit and go sit at one of those desks all day. But it's all good. It's all good? All good? Tom's indie actor moral superiority complex got inside Jim's head. Fucked him up. He was the man? No shit. Nah, he'd never be the man. He was different. He didn't conform. He didn't play the game the way they wanted him to. He wasn't being controlled. He'd prove it. Right here. Right now. Fuck this corporate-ass party and fuck Electra Records. Fuck Tom Baker. Jim had built it all up. He'd tear it down, too. He was fucking Shiva. They could bow to him. Thank him for bringing this inevitable destruction to their pitiful world of contracts and legal matters and billboard charts. They brought this on themselves. Jim held his glass tumbler in his hand like a baseball and suddenly hurled it down the hallway, nearly missing a secretary. The next thing he knew, he grabbed one of the office desks with both of his hands and flipped it over on its side. Papers went flying. The telephone bell clanged as it collapsed to the floor. Jim fell into full rage mode. He kicked at the door, swung at the wall, pushed people out of his way, lunged for anything that wasn't bolted to the floor, and made it take flight. Anger, he smiles, flowering in shiny metallic purple armor. Steve Harris, Electra's vice president, got a hold of Jim and swung his destructive trajectory toward the front door. Get him out of here, he hollered. And Jim spung through the office, the booze catching up with him now, swirling around in his brain faster than his body rocketed through the crowded party scene. He was passed from person to person from one set of arms to another, and then the front door was open and he was out on the street, tossed out like a regular nuisance, a 
disruptor, like someone who wasn't wanted anymore. He was done. He was out. He was breaking on through to another side. And at a door show in New Orleans, he'd unknowingly walk away from the band forever. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. All right, The 27 Club is scored and co-written by myself, Jake Brennan. Zeth Mundy is the lead writer and editor on the show. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, which are all available for you to binge right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about 27 Club. And as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other show, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rockerola. What's up for your ears? Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. We are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books. Students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? It's not okay what they're doing, and they're being watched. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot. But the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just 348 With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for.